I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, everybody. I have a fun little bonus episode for you today featuring one of my favorite people. We're going to be talking about two of my very favorite things, movies and dating. I am here with director Susanna Fogel, who is a longtime friend of mine, and she's actually done a Love Letters event in person pre-2020. So I met her years ago, in a very weird way, she was actually attached as a writer to adapt one of my books. That adaptation did not happen, but we stayed in touch, and she's done films and TV shows. She directed and co-wrote The Spy Who Dumped Me, which is hilarious and one of my favorite buddy adventure movies. Also, Susanna directed the pilot of The Flight Attendant, a show I was obsessed with. It is very good if you haven't seen it. It kind of got me through some of the darkest days of the pandemic. So Susanna's new film, which comes out October 6th, is Cat Person, based on the very buzzy New Yorker story of the same name by Kristen Rupenian. The original story was published at the end of 2017, and I remember this because at the Boston Globe Christmas party, it's all we were talking about. In the film version, Amelia Jones, who was so brilliant in CODA, plays the main character, Margot, as she navigates a questionable flirtation with an older man named Robert, played by Nicholas Braun, who you probably know as Cousin Greg in Succession. This movie is a wild and dark adaptation of a story that meant a lot to a lot of people, and I'm so excited for you to see it, but I really, really wanted Susanna to come on the podcast and talk about it. So Susanna, it's so great to finally have you on Love Letters. I'm so excited to be here. I'm impressed that your radio voice is not so different from your conversational voice, but it's just different enough, which I really love. There's less nose blowing in my podcasting voice. We edit that out. I'm just very impressed. So anyway, I I hope that we can go out to drinks at some point in Boston and you'll use that voice exclusively. I'll only order in this voice. (laughs) I love it. With pregnant pauses when when you talk about the modifications that you'll inevitably make because it's you. (laughs) All right. So I first, you know, just for anybody listening who missed the cat person phenomenon of late 2017. Here's how I remember it. Basically, somebody was like, go online, you have to read this story. And all these people were messaging me, like, go on to the New Yorker website, which, by the way, it's not that normal for a bunch of people from different areas of my life to be like, you better get on the New Yorker website. It's like the coolest place to be right now. And there was a short story, and it was a story about a very bad dating experience that was so vivid, I was getting the sense that people online, some of them didn't even know it was fiction. So can you talk about your memory of the story? Yeah. I mean, so I heard about this one because everybody was debating it. People were angry about it. And as I started reading it, I was like, okay, what are people so up in arms about? This just feels like a very well-observed 
small, intimate account of one woman's experience trying to negotiate her own mixed feelings about this guy. And it felt it felt real and very well observed, but it didn't feel like anything to be angry about. And then as I kept reading, I thought it was so bold and brilliant, but at the same time, I didn't really understand what all the fuss was about. And then all of the debate and anger and vitriol about it kind of became the narrative. So I didn't understand the impact of the story until I saw how worked up people got about the story, which then became this runaway story about how we're not on the same page as much as we may think we are culturally about these issues. You know, for those who don't know, uh, there's not a lot that happens in the story. Basically, a woman, young woman, college student working at a movie theater, meets a dude. He turns out to be a little bit older. They start texting. They have like a very uh, familiar courtship via text, right? And what happens is a series of sort of misunderstandings, disappointments. He's significantly older. He's in his 30s, as it turns out. And it just sort of spirals into this messy ending to a relationship. I think one of the things that was so groundbreaking to me about it and why people got so upset is because it was easy for the story to make you angry, to remind you if you in question are a woman dating men online, uh, how low the bar can be, how devastating it can be, how complicated it can be when someone young dates somebody quite a bit older. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like, it's not as though this story has characters doing wild things. I think it was just so familiar in its disappointment in an experience that that seemed to be what hit a lot of people. Yeah, it's it's almost like the banality of their interactions is so well told and relatable. What appealed to me about the idea of making a movie out of it is that we've, you know, obviously we all grew up on these overly romanticized love stories that didn't feel relatable, but they felt aspirational. And and we sort of were groomed to want that as women in particular. At the same time, as of recently, we're in this environment where issues of gender and dating are really charged. And especially on college campuses, there's a lot of rhetoric around the toxicity between men and women and issues of consent, all of that. So then we sort of had this spate of movies that was about that. It was like the reckoning for years of not feeling heard for all these women telling stories of victimhood. But post that, it's like there's there's room to tell stories like this. You know, obviously the story came out in the height of of conversations and the culture about um, consent, Me Too, and all of that. But it it's not really a story about that um, because she's sort of ambivalent about what she thinks. She doesn't get assaulted. She does consent, but she doesn't necessarily know what she wants, which is just infinitely more relatable than women knowing what they want all the time and being held responsible for knowing what they want all the time or else they like give up their power to change their mind or regret what they thought or said. So I just liked that it it was a story that lived in this horrible gray area and kind of kept you suspended there in a state of discomfort and cringing. And that seemed like worthy of an adaptation. And, And I think that's what made people so angry about it because I think when characters are so obviously the bad guy or the good guy, you align yourself with the hero of the story. If the bad guy's doing something that's overtly terrible, like as in a crime, then you don't have to really connect to anything they're doing because they're a criminal doing bad things. Whereas if they're just subtly not getting the message or if you're just subtly 
operating from a place of narcissism instead of a place of kindness, you know, you have to kind of reckon with that. So, yeah, I mean, just men recognizing sort of missed cues and awkwardness and crossed wires and just the discomfort of seeing themselves in Robert in certain ways or women reading it and realizing that they're in some way also culpable for you know, wanting validation from people that are inappropriate partners that they don't really intend to end up with, but they kind of like the way they look in their eyes and they want the attention and they want the praise. So I think all of those gray areas are allowing us to look at really universal experiences. This seemed a little bit like this weird Rorschach test for people's own shit, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And from my memory, and then we can move on from some of the history of this, but, you know, this story came out after Me Too conversations had started, but around the time that that story about Aziz Ansari had come out. And it was really complicated, I remember, for my friends to discuss a a statement about a romantic experience or a very much not romantic experience that wasn't all good or all bad. Like, this, you know, you had all these villains, like you said, of, of people doing criminal things. And then the, the blurry middle of, of, someone not feeling okay with an evening they had and an experience they had and not knowing how to name it and uh, people being sorry for their behavior and wanting to throw it into a bucket of terrible without really being able to parse out how did we get here? And I think these conversations continue to get more and more nuanced, hopefully. And anyway, I just wanted to give people a, a reminder of the time, especially if they're new to this. And by the way, if you have not read Cat Person, you can... Like, hit pause on this quick, read it. But anyway, okay. Now I want to talk about the movie. And I want to be clear because our last episode was about two people who were involved in the writer's strike. And they talk about their love story and what it's like to be married to a writer uh, when you were a writer, which turns out to make you very broke, like two writers right now. It's tough, right? But I want to, for that reason, I just want to ask you, just so everybody feels good about it, like why it's okay that you can talk about this movie you directed amid so many strikes. <laughs> um, well, I mean, basically, I am a writer, but I'm not the writer of this short story or this screenplay. So it just so happens that this is one of the few projects in which my involvement was solely as a director. And it's an independent movie. It's not part of the studio system, but we're in a weird time where we all believe in banding together and having union solidarity and really standing for what we are trying to accomplish with the strikes. At the same time, these labor of love projects we've worked on for years, we don't want them to disappear into obscurity. That doesn't feel like a victory either. So it's sort of incumbent upon the people who are still technically at work, like me, to make sure that people see this movie. Um, and I can talk about how great the writing is as as not the writer of it. But but yes, I'm, I'm here as a Director's Guild member. And maybe another time we can talk about things that I wrote, but not today. So I, I want to talk about, you know, when you got a hold of this movie and this became your project, I remember you saying to me very much off the record, like that casting was going to obviously be a big deal, not only because there are two very important big characters in this, but because these are two people who are like kind of dateable, but flawed. And particularly, you had to cast uh, a guy who you would believe could woo a person, but also make a lot of mistakes. Like, uh, it just seems like you're not casting the smiling romantic hero. You're you're casting the guy we actually meet, like, on a first date. <laughs> That's somebody a lot more, uh, a lot different. So can you talk about 
how you found the right people for these two roles, because it is so focused on them. Yeah, I mean, casting Robert was really challenging because the story's relatability relies on the fact that it's such a recognizable guy. It's a type of guy that's very specifically not other types of guys. So you can't take a movie star who's sort of matinee idol looking guy and make him cosplay as this guy. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's hard because to get movies made, they want, you know, and by they, I just mean whoever's financing the movie wants you to get the most famous, financially viable, sellable, castable person out there. And most of those people are not right for this really relatable movie that is not about two movie stars falling in love. And it's also not about a mustache twirling villain and a ingenue. It's about a 20-year-old girl who looks like she could be on a college campus, even in movie parlance, where obviously she's like the prettiest girl on your campus, but she needs she needs to look like she's still on your campus, not, you know, not in like a Vogue cover. And Amelia has that that ability really to disappear into the role she plays. So she feels like she could be your friend, or she's sort of the avatar for yourself that I think most women want to feel like, okay, yeah, that's that's the me character. And for Nick, it's just, you know, I, I wanted somebody who you wouldn't necessarily have an extreme opinion about one way or another, because that's most people. <laughs> you know, they're not the most or least attractive person you've seen. They're kind of just a large middle section of most human human beings. <laughs> and, and Nick is a great example because he sort of famously plays a nerd, but then also he was like the target of, mass female obsession in the culture. So clearly he had the potential to go either way in that way. Sort of like the dress, the, is it blue or is it gold dress? It's like, that's Nick Braun's sex appeal. It's like, am I the only person who thinks he's cute or does everyone think he's cute or is he not cute? You know, really, really hope Nick's listening to this podcast. But you know, it's sort of, he's he's that. And um, the other thing about him is that I think what was exciting to, to me is that the character's kind of laconic and kind of, a little bit cold. His defense mechanisms are really hyperactive in the story. You know, he's the kind of person who, if he feels a little bit rejected, he'll recoil. And he's both too eager and ready with a harsh criticism if he gets rejected. Like it's, I would I would hesitate to use the word incel because it's not fair, but it's like the lightest shade of what I think drives that culture too. It's like an anger, a sense of, righteous indignation that you were raised on Judd Apatow movies saying you could get the hottest girl in the world. And then actually, by the time you're of age, we're in a really hostile culture where you're being told to sit down and shut up and know your place and it's time to not speak. And I think that's led to a lot of male anger. And that anger is like under the surface of men who are still trying to date and connect with women. I don't want to give anything away, but there's a scene I like where he shows up with a food they've discussed. And it just reminded me so much of being the character's age and having one person do one nice thing and feeling seen and how much work we do, not just as women, but people. I mean, anybody. Like, you start to project all of these qualities onto someone that you're desperate for. And really, they've, like, just shown up with cereal at your front door. And all he did was one thing that wasn't, you know very good or bad. He just showed up. And yet it seems like the bar is so low in the initial stages of courtship at a young age that 
somebody showing up at your front door doing one thing that's a little bit romantic is like, oh my God, maybe we're soulmates. Yeah. And and also that that you sort of selectively highlight the parts of that encounter that you want to keep in the story and not others. So just in that particular scene without, I mean, these aren't really spoilers because they're like the details of a incredibly specific banal scene about two people on a date and there's really not anything to be revealed. But, you know, he shows up, he complains about how long it took him to walk from the parking lot to the door, but he brought the treats. And then when she hesitates to invite him in, he's like a little bit of an asshole about it because from his perspective, he's not sure whether it's safe to proceed, you know? And I think what was interesting is that the story is it's all Margot's perspective and it's all a projection of who he is. And you never get any, you never hear from Robert really in, in Kristen's story. You're never in his world. He never really reveals what his experience was. But in the movie, even though it's also from Margot's perspective, I still have to talk to the actor who's asking, well, why did I say that? Or what motivated me to complain about the walk from the parking lot to the door? You know, and so I still have to, I still have to like account for a human being's feelings because it's a, three-dimensional human playing that role and inhabiting it. So that was an interesting challenge. It was kind of like filling in the other side of the Rashomon story of their encounter that Kristen, even if it's just in the shadows and it's never makes its way to the screen, it was just an interesting process of adapting this particular story where the man was not, was not like an agent of anything. More of my conversation with director Susanna Fogel after a quick break. This story in The New Yorker stops pretty quickly after a text exchange. Like there isn't, again, there's not a lot of action. It's just communication and um, and a few bad interactions. You have to make it a whole movie and the writer has to make it a whole movie. I know it was already a screenplay by the time it got to you, but how would you describe how the film sort of builds from the the story? You know, the story, when I read it, my first thought was like any viral story, someone's going to try to make this into a movie and I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't think it's a movie. I'm like, Someone's going to do it. It's going to be talky. It's going to be small. It's not going to have the complexity. I wish the block, but I don't get it. And then years later, I read Michelle Ashford's adaptation and I saw that what she had done was take all of these fears, thoughts, projections, wishes, fantasies that are in Margot's head and made them, actualize them. So you as the viewer are kind of like immersed in Margot's unconscious, subconscious. So if she has a fear about being with this man, you see what that fear feels like and you feel that fear too. So there's like a genre crossover element to how Michelle saw it. And also, I think Michelle wanted to play out what does that fear push to the extreme? What does that fear make you do? I think that between the time the story came out and when the movie got made, it's sort of like there'd been so many conversations. It almost felt like we'd progressed a little bit in what we wanted to talk about. So it felt like it needed almost a call and response, like answer to the story. So what is going on in Robert's perspective? So I think Michelle's vision was just, you know, it's it sort of plays out like the story does, but then what? Then what happens? You know, what what happens in a situation where the rejection is on the table and both parties are handling that rejection really badly? You know, you're, we're taught to like 
not poke the bear, to not inflame men. Like women are taught that, especially because the consequences of a man getting mad are sometimes really scary and feel like they could be physical and they're bigger than us. And that's a real, that's a real primal fear that women have. So what happens when a woman is afraid that that's the stakes of, of her rejecting the man, which sometimes leads women to be really indirect, which makes the men feel more let on, which leads to more anger. So it, it often spirals into the worst case scenario that can come of two people not communicating properly. And that's kind of what Michelle envisioned for where the story would go. So it, it, it the third act of the story picks up where Kristen's story left off and is in a way, not an answer to the story, but it's it's sort of the next chapter in what would happen in this in this encounter. Anyway, it becomes a genre film in a different way, or it, it's sort of her nightmares become manifest in a real way. I won't give away too much. One of the things I also love about the movie is the role of friends. And you've mentioned this today, but like we have all these people who want to help us, protect us, share their experiences with us. And it's complicated, right? Because we can scare the shit out of each other because we've all had such bad experiences. And you know, I have conversations with friends about, oh, is this person just love bombing you? And like, unfortunately, love bombing, a term we've used here, like also just looks like someone loving you. And and that like, it's really hard, especially around people who've had their own dating experiences to assume the best of anyone. And I wondered if you could speak to, to that role of having a peer, having a friend who wants to help you in the best way, but actually makes you feel like danger is around every corner. Yeah, I mean, in the short story, the friend was a sounding board, but was more just sort of there to egg her on. The friend wasn't playing as specific of a role, but in the intervening years between the story coming out and the movie getting made, there was just this explosion of writing and conversation about, like, kind of like the academic environment's attitudes towards gender and dating. And that's the place where people talked about the toxicity and microaggression and all these terms that kind of come out of the intellectual community and and the sort of culture of wokeness and and that term being thrown around and, and all of that. So we wanted Taylor, her friend, to basically represent the extreme of that. So Margot, you know, maybe is aspiring to love connections, but but her friend can sort of talk herself out of anything because she's convinced herself that staying in her room is the only way that she can avoid the danger that lurks around every corner, like you said. She's also a person who's quick to be defensive and has all of this armor around her that takes the form of this super academic speech and thought. So basically, like, Taylor is basically like a woke machine who's telling Margot that every everything he's doing, there's some sinister motivation behind it. And in Taylor's world, you know, Taylor's problem is that she's actually just using a lot of this as a smokescreen to deal with her own fears. So fears of putting herself out there and connecting. And by not believing that an authentic connection could ever be positive, she's justified not taking any personal risks. That's a real person that I think we all know, someone who's more comfortable online, on Twitter, waging wars with people that they've never met who live across the world, but but feeling like those stakes of that are just as high. So we wanted to explore that and have that sort of be the that if there's an angel and a devil on, on Margot's shoulders, the angel is like her her mom, her mom's generation saying, you should find a man and don't be too feminist around men, don't expect too much. And then her friend's saying, you should expect more and, you know, all sex is rape. And, you know, it's that extreme other perspective. Um, so Margot's trying to navigate those two wildly different sides. 
people have asked me like what genre this film sits in, if it's a thriller, if it's a drama, and obviously a lot of things in one. And of course, my brain goes to the term horror, which it is not. But there is something, my kind of horror movie is about like feelings you can't control or, you know, I, I saw the movie Eighth Grade and I was like, this is a horror film. <laughs> it is horrific to be like a 13-year-old girl navigating the world. And and even I think if I had looked at the audience that night when I saw it, you would have thought they were watching a horror film. And similarly with this film, like, you know, how would you frame it in terms of genre? You know, our references when we were putting the movie together were everything from thrillers and horror movies to observational comedies. It's, it is by design many different things, but, but I think the North Star for me was just making it reflect what it, the experience is of being a young woman, which is that you could be having a dumb conversation with your friend on the phone walking down a dark alley and then you hear a rustling behind you and you instantly flash on what it would be like to get strangled by a stranger who jumps out of a, an alley and kills you for no reason, you know? And then you realize it's a cat and then you go back to talking about dating with your friend on the phone in the dark alley. Like, it's, that is, that, that is an experience that is multi-genre. <laughs> that is also the experience of being a young woman. Um, so I just wanted it to feel like that from moment to moment whether she feels safe or not, we just push it to the extreme. If she feels safe and cozy with her friend, they're they're having a fun, bantery, low-stakes, cozy conversation in their dorm room where there's humor. And then in moments where she's walking home from, from her job and she's not sure if the guy that she blew off is going to retaliate, is that's really scary. Um, and her brain goes to the worst places. And part of that's informed by movies she's seen where, you know, all the movies we all see where women are the victims and and um, the horror movies that are like the canon that exist in the mind of all of us, but especially Margot who works at a movie theater. It's like she's imagining herself in that role and also in the role of like a woman in a courtship in a romantic movie. It's like we're all, we're all like dealing with all of those references, trying to piece together what our reality is. Um, so I guess, I guess I would say it's a bunch of different genres, but it's, it's a comedic thriller, I guess. I just, I hate to say it because I don't want it to seem like the thrills are arch or not high stakes. It's just, yeah, I think it's as horrific and funny as it as it feels like to be a young woman or person. You're reminding me of the other day I was taking the tea in Boston and I like sensed a, a much taller presence behind me and I got into that mode of like a fight or flight, like I have to get out of here mode. And, and then I saw a man approaching and keep in mind, it's broad daylight at this point, and I whip around and it is clearly someone who was so lost and was coming from out of town and was like, I don't know how to buy a tea ticket. And I felt so ashamed about assuming that I was about to like have this terrible crime happen to me. And this person who'd come in was like, can you just please tell me how to get on the subway? And, and, but like, there's a reason all of our brains go to all of these places. And, and yet it's so at least for me, luckily, has been more often just somebody who needs directions. And anyway. Yeah. You look like you have a face for giving people directions. You look like a friendly. I do. And one time when I was in Amsterdam, everyone asked me for directions. And I was like, do I look like I'm from here? There's something about me. I don't know. Even in a place where I almost was walking in front of like a bunch of bikes, like plowing over me, where I clearly didn't know where I was. Everybody was like, just tell me where to go. Yeah. So I don't know. It's you have like a steadfast blondness that makes you seem <laughs> like you would know your way around Amsterdam. Um, 
<laughs> that's one, probably what it was. Yeah. The one Blonde. other the one other thing I was going to say was just that um, that at, you know I talk about like the experience of being a young woman and, and Margot's perspective, but the but just to go back to wanting to be even handed about understanding Robert's motivations and feelings, sort of the mirror image of or or whatever the reflection of the, the male side of what Margot's going through is his feeling that he might have the best intentions, but she's always a little on guard with him and it's not his fault too. Like that, that he didn't ask to be six foot seven. He didn't ask to be part of the gender that's responsible for most of the violence against women. You know, he he sort of feels a little bit victimized by, by those projections she makes about him. Even if, the, you know, even though he may know they're not personal, it's exploring the ways that Robert feels angry and offended that she would cast him in that light in her mind, even for a second, is also something that motivates his bad behavior. So in, there's a moment in the movie where Margot is, you know, he steps toward her. She has a, just a reflexive fear reaction, but there they were having what he thought was a nice date where he brought her the food that you talked about. And in that moment, there's it's such a complex moment because she can't control that she's just scared instinctively. She's not consciously really putting together a whole narrative about he's the, how he's the bad guy, but he feels her fear. And then he starts retreating because he realizes that on some level that that amounts to her pulling away or casting him in a bad light or looking at him like he could do something bad. And that kind of brings out an anger that weirdly kind of creates a version of the monster that she was afraid of. So it's also about that. Um, you know, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is he picks her up and they're driving to the movie theater to go see a movie. And there's just a moment that happens when they pick up speed and the doors automatically lock. And she has a reaction. He sees that she has it. It's like, what do you say? Or, you know, and so you joke awkwardly about how you're not going to do something bad, but that just makes it seem like it's on everyone's mind. It's just the, the unbearable awkwardness of that. Um, it is funny in the most uncomfortable gallows humor way, but also it's horrific what she's imagining, but also we've all been there on both sides. So that's like, in my mind, that's like the zenith of like what the tone wants to be. I don't want to give anything away, but th there is a, a scene in his apartment where he's got a movie that he likes, just I think right like a DVD cover from my memory. And I like the movie a lot. If you watch Cat Person, you'll see what movie it is. And I just kept thinking if I met this guy like, on the street at a party, we'd probably talk a lot about a lot of things. And and at no point at that point do you get the sense that he wants to be a villain. And, and even the moments of realizing the age difference, you know, a part of me was like, well, this man should totally walk away from this much younger woman. But you've made an interesting point about what brought him there. You know, like maybe his peers are not accepting his invitations. And, you know, he's had a decade longer to sort of devolve into whatever he's become, you know, in terms of his outlook on dating. So uh, it's a lot to think about. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that I think it's a complicated, like many step dance that gets them to this horrible place they end up in. And they're both participating in that. It doesn't mean that they're of equal power or status or that, you know, I'm blaming her for being there, but it's, you're seeing the moves they're both making to get them, to lead them into the house when they shouldn't be in the house. And also it's what I also loved about the story that we tried to preserve is that 
she does have like an ego about being like a young, hot girl compared to this older guy. And that's interesting. It doesn't make her unlikable. And it doesn't mean she's always in control of that power. And she also has plenty of insecurities. But but I think it is an age where you become a little bit addicted to what you realize is like a little bit of status that you have or a little bit of agency that you have um, just by default of being like the young, cute girl in the situation. And so I think that as her life puts her in different situations where she feels like starved for validation, she's tempted to like go back to the well that is Robert and get more of it. And he doesn't know all the things that led her to send him a message one night wanting wanting to connect or not send him a message the next day. He's just kind of piecing together his own narrative of, oh, she must be interested. She sent me hundreds of messages. He doesn't know why she sent them or when she sent them or that she just had a fight with her mom when she sent them or whatever. So it's that's the where the projection comes in, I think. I'm so happy you came on to talk about this because the minute I heard it was going to be a movie, Cat Person, I was like, what are they going to do? Who's going to do it? And then later for you to tell me, it's me, that meant I got to talk about exactly <laughs> what was going to happen. It's like all my wishes came true. And so anyway, everybody can see it October 6th. October 6th is New York and L.A., and then I think a week or two later in other other places, too. Thank you so much, Susanna, for coming on, and thanks for making stories we can watch. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being my favorite Boston hang. Thanks for having me on the, the podcast. I love Love Letters, and I'm, there's just no better way to talk about this movie than in the context of your wonderful column. So thank you. Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman and Jesse Remedios. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Maddie Mortel does our audience engagement. Special thanks to Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We're online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening. <laughs>